Welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView. If you've been following along this season, you know that we're here to figure out the new customer journey and what that means for SaaS. Today, we hear from Chris Miller, Director of Product Growth at HubSpot. Chris has been a key growth leader at HubSpot for over four years, and he's been instrumental in driving the company's adoption of product-led growth. In today's episode, we unpack the differences between growth marketing and growth product, how to use the three D's framework to solve growth problems, that's discoverability, desirability, and doability, and how HubSpot uses advanced segmentation to serve a large and heterogeneous pool of prospects. That and more on this episode of Build. So let's dive in with Chris Miller. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us here on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, Blake. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Really excited to be here today. So we're going to jump into uh, a lot of topics on growth, since you own so much of growth at HubSpot. And I think the first place to start is probably talking about you know roles and responsibilities within growth teams. And so I guess the, the logical place for, for me is, uh, for a starting point, is to think about what are the differences between growth marketing and growth product? Because I know that's the, the first question I get. There's a lot of confusion around that. Um, and I know you have a strong point of view on that. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I think about it, they're actually way more similar than they are different. Really, the key difference comes down to the tools that they use and the outputs that they generate to lead to the outcomes that both growth marketers and growth product managers and product people in general like to see. So for example, you may have a team of growth marketers who's really thinking about conversational channels or email to try to drive adoption of a set of tools or a product. And then you have a product team, a growth product team that's thinking about doing that, trying to get to that same outcome, but by building in-app onboarding flows or by trying to integrate learning much more tightly into their product experience to help drive adoption. So frameworks and processes in a healthy environment often look really, really similar, but you know the, the path to get there, the tools that they use and the channels that they play with can tend to be different. And so what does the, the collaboration between growth marketing and growth product end up looking like since there are a lot of similarities and some overlaps that you've highlighted? Yeah. So, you know, the reality is, is when a customer is adopting a product, it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking that throughout the entire customer journey, they are in your product, right? Like they're seeing everything that you build. But the reality is that people are humans. They have real lives. They're bouncing in and out of focus on the thing that is in front of them and the distractions happening around them. They're on their phones or on their laptops. When we think about the collaboration, the relationship between growth marketers and growth products, it's really sort of trying to take an omni-channel approach, trying to think about growth in an online and offline context to make sure that there's consistent messaging, both from your product and your company, but really trying to prevent your user or your customer from becoming disoriented as they're going through your customer journey. And so you may be on your phone and sign up for a product and then you get your first email welcoming you into that product on your phone. But then when you go to actually dive in, you're on your laptop. And so what are the relationships between those two different scenarios and those two different environments with the same product? And how can the teams that own those channels and those environments work together to make sure that that journey is like really consistent and it never feels like you're being bounced in between two different teams when you're going 
through the onboard Amber product as you know a pretty pedestrian example. I like that idea of you described it of online and offline. It also kind of sounds like in product or outside of product, and being aware that those things don't. The, the vendor thinks about it as okay, well, you took step one, and now you're going to take step two, and you know it's a logical progression. And obviously, you remember where you left off because why wouldn't you? My product's amazing. But from the the user's perspective, again, like you said, there's so much more distracted, and so you need to think about it kind of from their point of view and think about it that they might be on different screens or in different contexts or, quite frankly, might have forgotten why they clicked on the CTA and, and all those kinds of things. So within that, if there is this online, offline, in-product, outside-of-product sort of juxtaposition that we need to think about, and the, the answer is really integration, so how do you know on your team, where do you draw the line between the roles and responsibilities of the feature PMs versus the, the growth PMs? Yeah, that's a great question. The way that I think about the difference between a feature PM and a growth PM is that, and you know, this isn't a hard and steady rule, like there's definitely organizations that can do a pretty good job of having feature PMs who also think about growth or growth teams that are building core features. But in a dedicated model where you have a group within your product org who is tasked with thinking about growth of the business. The way to think about the difference between what those PMs do and what a feature PM does is that a feature PM's remit is really around building the core value. They're building the thing, thing being your product that your customers are using to get to the dream state, the desired outcome that they're looking for. And what a growth PM is doing is thinking about how to get the largest percentage of target audience, total addressable market to see that core value as quickly as possible, right? Like they're building the on-ramps, the off-ramps, they're thinking about the marginal user because the vast majority of people are not going to be power users, they're not going to be advocates, they're not going to be the, the healthiest segment of customers within your install base. And really what growth teams are trying to do is grow that number of people, right? Like they're trying to bring people from the margins, from the fringe, looking from the outside and get them to that state of, wow, I feel like I'm getting a ton of value from this product. I feel like I'm getting all the outcomes. I understand what I need to do to extract more value. And I'm, I'm, I'm having a delightful experience. So the, the thing that occurs to me as you're describing that is it's kind of like, what are you pointed at as a product manager? Are you pointed at, uh, as you described it, building core value in the, the, the product itself? Or are you pointed at the funnel or the on-ramps and off-ramps that get you into that product? Is that the right way to think about it, or is it less of a, a clear-cut delineation between two focal points? No, I think that's a pretty good way to think about it. I, I love the on-ramp analogy. You could build the greatest email tool the world has ever seen, but if people struggle to figure out how to get it configured so that they can send their first email, then you're leaving a lot of opportunity on the table. And what a growth team is thinking about is what's that friction that's standing in the, in the way of my target audience and this really awesome thing that my feature teams have built. Or even just thinking literally, it's like a highway is pretty useless if you can't get on or off of it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the best product in the world, if you can't you know, get people into it or if there's a ton of friction or if it's extremely complicated, it doesn't really matter what's behind that sort of login wall because you know nobody's gonna find it in the first place. So both, it's kind of hand in glove, right? Right, right. Now, another thing you've described to me is solving growth problems. And the framework that you use is the three Ds of growth. So I'm wondering if you could walk us through what are the three Ds and, and what do they mean? 
Yeah. So the 3Ds is a framework that we've been using. And it's what it comes down to is you could really boil most conversion rate problems down to three buckets. We call those 3Ds. They're discoverability, desirability, and doability. And there's a method here. There's a there's an order of operations. And when you deploy this framework the right way, it actually allows you to solve problems much more quickly than you would be able to if you were trying to reinvent the wheel every time you were hit with sort of a, a growth challenge. And so, you know, the first question we like to ask is usually around discoverability. If there's an action that you know that your target audience needs to take in order to get to success with your product, can they find it, right? And I know it sounds really basic, it can be really silly, but you know, there's a lot of different factors that play into discoverability, right? Like with any sort of visual product or product that takes up screen real estate, you know, you're making design decisions, a finite number of actions you can take on the page. And so you have to think about the hierarchy of those choices that you're putting in front of your target audience, your users, and make sure that the ones that are most important are actually the ones that are easiest to find. You take into account screen sizes, devices, are, are your actions below the fold, are they being buried and cluttered? And so when you can triangulate and try to figure out if there's a discoverability piece, those are usually pretty simple fixes. And so we always really like to start there. But let's assume that you are positive that customers are seeing the button, right? Like they're seeing the, the, the action that you're asking them to take, but nobody's taking it. Rather than try to make the button bigger or play with the color of the button, like really superficial changes that are aimed at discoverability, you have to ask yourself, why aren't they taking this action? Maybe they don't see the value of taking that action. Maybe they think that taking the action is going to commit them to a long process that they just don't really have time right now to do. Maybe they're not authorized to take that action. So desirability is really understanding why people see something but don't chase it. And the way that we tackle that is really getting back to research, talking to people, understanding their motivations, their fears and anxieties, and their processes that govern how they go about adopting software or buying software or sharing software with their team. And, and try to unpack that first to just come up with a set of hypotheses that are testable to, to, to get to the bottom of why people aren't taking the action. And so you've fixed discoverability. You've fixed your copy, you've told a really compelling story, and people are ready to get going, but they're not finishing the action. Well, then that's when we start to talk about the third D, which is doability. Are they not finishing the action because it's too hard? Are they running into issues? Is it a process that's going to require them to do a lot of stop and go? They get halfway through, then they realize that they need to go configure something else. And you can spend a lot of really well-spent product calories making things just simply easier to complete, making actions easier to do. And so anytime we get hit with a, a product-led growth problem, we try to put it through that filter. Okay, is this a discoverability problem? Check. Is it desirability? Okay, now let's go over to doability. Um, it allows us to at least have a consistent way to look at these types of problems, regardless of which macro space that they sit in. Yeah, I, I like the way you framed it, which is just with really basic first principles questions, which is, did they see the thing? Did they take the action on the thing? Uh, did they complete the action on the thing? If the answer to any of those is no, well, then the next logical question is, well, why? Right? And I, I think what you described on that desirability piece, that, that was really interesting because I see marketers and I see product people and I see growth people doing that all the time, which is they didn't click the button. It said sign up. Maybe it should say get started. <laughs> or it was this big. Maybe we should make it twice as big. It was green. Maybe we should make it red. And while A-B testing is important, I think that that is a little bit too in the weeds. 
and you needed to zoom out to the highest level and say, well, if I was in the customer's shoes, if I was in the user's shoes, why wouldn't I be clicking on this? Is it really the color of the button? Is it really the specific copy on the, the call to action? Or is there some more fundamental reason? And I think that idea of using user research to get to the bottom of it, as you indicated, that, that really helps to sort of unlock it and unpack it versus just, you know, when you got a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? When you got A-B testing or sort of, you know, make the button bigger, everything looks like that. That's the problem. Yeah, it's all about trying to marry the right solution to the right problem. Yeah. You know, I know one thing that you and I have talked a bit about is that one of the teams you own is the adoption team. And then I know that there's a, a number of components to product adoption and, and you kind of further break it down to the component parts from there. So what is adoption uh, in your view and, and how do you organize your team to accomplish it? For us, adoption is actually more of a pillar. It's a collective of teams that include teams focused on acquisition and as well as teams focused on activation and onboarding and sort of related problems. And the best way to describe why we went about doing it that way is to reference Conway's law that I think Mel Conway came up with in 1967, which was that, and it's a law you want to avoid, right? It's when your product mirrors your organizational design. And you see this in a lot of places where if you have a team that sits in one silo that owns the signup experience and a completely separate team that sits in another silo that owns the activation experience, if you look closely, it's pretty obvious that those are two teams that don't have a shared roadmap. Those are two teams that don't even have the same definition of what success looks like. One team is looking at people who create a username and password, and then they're saying, job well done. Another team's looking at everything that has to happen downstream from that to make sure that these customers are healthy and successfully adopting the tools. And so by combining this under one pillar, it allows us to really think about this as one continuous journey. It's a forcing function for being aligned. And it's a forcing function of trying to think of this as not two mutually exclusive tasks, you know, within a product-led growth playbook, right? Like when you think about it from the pirate metric lens, it's easy to think of those as like being two discrete parts of a customer journey when in fact they often aren't. And so it's just, it's forcing much of just trying to put the customers first in terms of how we think and build product. Yeah. And, and one thing that's come out as we've been doing this season of the podcast talking to different folks is this illustration of thinking about your funnel as, as a, an assembly line. And I think that that is the more traditional way to think about it. And, and that's kind of exactly, at least to me, what you're getting at with this idea of Conway's law which is that your product and the product journey and the experience mirrors your team structure, which, you know, it makes sense how you would land on that, but it doesn't make a lot of sense why you would do that from the customer's perspective, right? If your team and if your flow is all focused on getting MQLs and then turning those MQLs into SQLs and then turning those into SALs and then eventually getting closed one, then that's what the, the prospect or the lead is going to feel like. It's going to feel like I'm being treated like an MQL. And now I'm being treated like an SQL is trying to get qualified, right? But that's not what they're, tr they're trying to solve pain. They're trying to solve problems. And so breaking it out and thinking about it more from the customer, what's the goal they're trying to accomplish with adoption um, and activation and sign up versus like, what's the next stage of my assembly line that I want to get you to is a really helpful way to sort of invert and rethink about it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how is adoption different in a bottom-up freemium or sort of product-led growth motion versus a top-down traditional motion? This is a really interesting topic, particularly because at HubSpot, we didn't start off as being a freemium business. We, we started off as a traditional top-down SaaS business. And so when we started the growth team, 
we were really trying to retrofit this freemium motion onto a company that didn't traditionally think of the business like that. And one of the key observations that came out of that is flipping this idea of who is auditioning for whose time. When you think about a traditional top-down SaaS company, oftentimes prospects are auditioning for the company's time. There's all these mechanisms in place to qualify the lead just so that they can get on the phone with a sales rep who can demo the product and eventually sell it to them. And it's only after they've handed over money that they become a user. And so once you've gotten to the stage where you're ready to adopt the product, you've already committed. You're in a contract. Like your patience, your sort of like reservoir of goodwill, your motivation to sort of get to that dream state is just so much higher once you've forked over some money. However, in a freemium business that's bottoms up, that entire dynamic changes. Just because somebody created an account does not mean that they're committed to your software. You're still auditioning very much for your prospective customer's time. And so it forces you to think a lot differently about the mental mode that they're in when they're evaluating your product. They're distracted. They want to get to value ASAP. They don't want to jump through hoops if it's not clear what they get in return. And so when we're thinking about removing the friction for people to adopt our product, what we're thinking about is how do we make the best use of this other person's time? They are ultimately in control of this process and they will walk away and never think about us again if their first five, 10 minutes of that experience doesn't blow them away. It's a pretty significant paradigm shift in how you think about who's courting who in that environment. Yeah, that idea of auditioning for the prospect's time versus the other way around. It's a very simple concept, but it, it really just brings it to the fore of all the things that cascade down from that in terms of how you would think about product, how you think about customer journey differently. So I think if we dig deeper into activation, right, because you were talking about adoption equals acquisition plus activation. You mentioned that HubSpot for a long time was trying to move the needle on activation and tried a number of things that didn't work, and then ultimately determined that segmentation was really one of the keys to unlock better activation. So how'd you guys do that and, and walk us through what that looked like in real life? Yeah, it might be helpful to set some context here. So when thinking about an activation problem or an onboarding problem, there are some basic truths that you really wanna know in order to be able to go into your solutioning process with a pretty high likelihood of success. You kind of need to know who's coming into the front door. You need to know what they're looking for. You need to know what their desired outcomes are, because if the steps that you're asking to take aren't aligned with what their outcomes are, or if they cannot see the connection between those things, again, you're going to run into this friction of low desirability. Sure, I, I, I want the dream state, but I don't know why you're asking me to do all these things in the, in the interim, right? And so one of the things that was really challenging for us was that we didn't really have a singular answer to those questions. We weren't dealing with a singular persona. We have marketers, we have salespeople, we have customer success professionals, we have two-person businesses, and we have 2,000-person businesses all signing up for the same product. And what we were really trying to build was a one-size-fit-all solution for all of those people. And when you're trying to be everything to everyone, you're nothing to everyone. And so no design overhaul was gonna help us solve that. What we really needed to do was figure out how to build an experience that felt personal for our sort of core blocks of target audiences and personas. And so we, we, we decided we were gonna play the segmentation game. <laughs> and 
that was a really scary thing. And it's a really scary thing for a lot of companies because think about the maintenance costs over time of trying to maintain these discrete experiences per segment. You look at sort of your grid of all the possible segments you could you can create. And it's sometimes really daunting to figure out where you should start. And so we thoughtfully made the decision to go down this path. And what we tried to do was come up with some lowest common denominator questions that we knew we needed to have an answer to in order to be able to properly introduce somebody to our product. And some of those questions for us are, what department do you represent, right? Like, Should we show you marketing tools or should we show you sales tools within our CRM? What's your role in that department? Are you a rep who's coming in looking for acceleration tools that can help you close more deals to hit your quote at the end of the month? Or are you a sales manager who's looking for reporting solutions that you can have a better, more highly predictable pipeline? And then one of the questions we layered in there that was quite a game changer for us was experience level. It seems so obvious now, but experience level is a really important thing to consider based on where your product sits in whatever competitive space. Are people coming to your product likely coming from a competing product or is your product new and novel and there's really not an equivalent solution out there? Because based on the answer to that question, how you talk to people coming into your product for the first time is going to wildly vary. Somebody's coming into your product from a large competitor, what they're probably thinking is, how do I map the process from this other product into your product? They already have a concept of what a healthy process looks like. They're just trying to figure out how to replicate it. And so maybe there might be friction in terms of vernacular that you use and how objects are represented in your product. But if somebody is coming from really sort of no process and no solution, and they're adopting front office software for the first time, you're going to have to probably start with the basics. And when we really started to build the product to reflect that, what we found was that it worked. <laughs> people, people actually were more successful getting activated on the product when we started using language that more resonated with where they were at at the time of sort of sign up and unboxing for the first time. When we started introducing tasks that were more aligned with their experience level and sort of their, their technical abilities and configuring something like a CRM. And so we have our boxes in our grid and the key is to be really mindful about just how much segmentation you need in order to remove that desirability and doability friction from your funnel. That makes me think of something that I see oftentimes with younger companies, which is when they have that exact problem, the, the users coming in aren't doing what we want. What do we need to change about messaging? What do we need to change about how we're communicating to these people when they come to the front door? A lot of times the answer is to, to zoom out and say, well, we need to describe this category better. And, and us in the startup world, we're, we're sort of addicted at times to creating new categories. There was a category that's existed for five years. Well, like if I'm doing a new startup, I, I can't call it the thing that's been called for five years. I got to come up with some new sort of XYZ management system sort of platform to describe it. And there's some validity to that. Category creation is a thing. What occurs to me as you're describing that is by zooming out and trying to create a new category and, and use some new sort of catch-all term for the product or the value that you have, you're actually making it more vague. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying here is through segmentation and through specificity, you need to not zoom out and make it vague and high level, but instead zoom in and make it specific. Yes. Make it specific to that individual persona and what they're trying to accomplish. Right. In fact, I would go, I would go even further and say, have a bias towards trying to prevent your user or customer from having to learn anything. <laughs> the less they have to learn, the less they have to sort of do mental work to understand your product and map that to their problem, the better. 
And so meeting them where they're at is very, very important, in my opinion. And then what's the role of this other framework that you mentioned to me before, which is learn, collect, apply in the context of segmentation? Yeah. So this goes back to the question of, okay, so you decided you want to employ some amount of segmentation into your product experience in order to drive personalized experiences. Like the first natural question is like, all right, so like, where do I start? And how many segments do I need to have? And there's no easy answer to that question, but the framework that we use, Learn, Collect, Apply, allows us to sort of methodically go through and develop a perspective on what the right amount of segmentation could look like. And so learn is literally what it means. It means going to your research and understanding from your customer's perspective how they think about making decisions at each of those steps of your product funnel. So when they're sitting on your signup page, for example, and they're looking for justification, reason to hand over their information and create an account, what are some of the things that they're looking for and in what ways are they looking for those things to resonate? So for example, are they looking for social proof? Are they looking for social proof from companies of a similar size? Are they looking for social proof from companies of a similar industry? Are they looking for social proof from other individuals who have their role, who found success using this set of tools? Are there geographic considerations? And when you talk to people and kind of hear them talk through how they make those decisions, those themes and those clusters of important vectors are going to start to pop up. And then you can then make a decision. Well, it doesn't make any sense to have a sign-up experience that's personalized by geography because literally nobody mentioned that they were looking for that (laughs) when they were making those kinds of decisions. But everybody mentioned that they need to know that other podcasts have used this platform and have been successful. And then that gives you a, a signal in terms of this is something that we should start to take seriously in terms of our segmentation strategy. Okay, so now that you've determined that industry vertical, let's say, podcast companies are a consideration for any company evaluating your software, well, you need, in order to be able to fuel personalization, you need to have that data at scale and it needs to be reliable and it needs to be accurate for you to actually deliver an experience that's going to be delightful and effective. And so you have to think about how you're going to go about collecting that data. Are you going to collect first party declared data, right? And what kind of friction is that going to add from a doability perspective to your product if you have to ask them for a set of things in order to fuel that personalized experience, that segmented experience? Can you derive that data through enrichment and data partners? Can you infer that data from other information that either firmographic or demographic that they're giving you in the in the signup flow in order to really deliver that personalized value? And then once you've learned what the right vectors of segmentation are, and once you've been able to successfully say you're collecting it at scale and it's accurate and it's reliable, well, then it comes to the process of figuring out what that actually looks like in the experience, how that manifests itself, and is it the right solution to the problem that you're actually having? And, you know, we approach that through our standard process of rapid experimentation, hypothesis-driven product development, and it's business as usual. But by doing that learn and collect phase earlier, you ensure that your engineering cycles are have a much higher likelihood of you know resulting in successful tests that are going to remove that friction and help your customers get to that success date in your product faster. And who's the the main driver of this learn, collect, apply framework? Is it the entire product squad that that we're talking about here, or is it an individual user research person? 
Is it product ops uh, or is it a little bit of everything? Yeah, so we take a mixed method approach to research and learning. And we have UX researchers who are partnered and teamed up with product data analysts. And they usually drive that first learn piece, which is sort of like, which inputs matter here? Then they partner really closely with product managers and designers to figure out what's the right way to collect this data. Let's assume that we're going we're gonna to take a first party declare data approach. Where should this question actually sit? Like, when do we actually need to ask for it? Is it at the very first moment when someone's coming to your product and they're creating an account? Or can we ask for it later? Like, when do we actually need this information? And then when you get to the apply phase, it's, it's definitely a collaborative effort. We, we obviously want to have our researchers and analysts part of that conversation and driving the ideation about like, how does this manifest itself as a personalized experience? But we really let our designers lead the way in tandem with our engineering teams to lean into our product development process and develop strong hypotheses and convert those into experiments and, and, and really just test our assumptions and figure out how we're going to get it right. So I'm hearing throughout the conversation, whether it's learn, collect, apply, or if it's the nature of the adoption function between acquisition activation, the three Ds of growth, everything kind of points at an underlying structure, team structure, org structure that is fundamentally cross-functional. Do you have any tips or tricks on how to do cross-functional and not make it a total you know, chaos show? One thing that is important is to have a process or system in place that democratizes the fielding and collection of ideas and hypotheses. The key to having, I think, really high quality hypotheses or ideas or visions is context and information. If you democratize that information and you set a sort of standard of what we think a, an actionable idea is, and everybody's well aware of that standard, then everyone has a seat at the table and it never feels like, oh, the product manager is the person who's dominating the ideation. And I'm just here to sort of do tasks like interview customers, but it's really never my role to have a hand in the solutioning. Like I think in order to have really healthy cross-functional teams, there needs to be a high degree of psychological safety and you need to make sure that every voice in the room is heard and is playing by the same sort of set of rules for how things get prioritized and the goalposts don't move. But to complement that, I think you also have to have somebody whose job it is to make the final call. And if you can establish that, whether that's the product manager, whether that's a triad of PM, product designer, and engineering lead, but you really have to have somebody whose job it is to call the tiebreakers. And everyone needs to buy into that system. And I think if everyone agrees that we have a transparent and fair process for how people can contribute ideas into the backlog and how those ideas are litigated and scrutinized and ruthlessly prioritized. And then you have somebody whose job it is to govern that system and make sure that it's working as designed. And if there's ever any disputes or conflicts, this person, you know, we've agreed that they're going to make the final call. And I think you can have really healthy cross-functional teams. And I think, in fact, the healthiest teams are cross-functional because, you know, as I mentioned before, you can democratize the information. There's so much more context sharing and then there's better alignment as to what we're doing in what order and why. Well, Chris, this has been an uh, incredibly helpful conversation. I think all of these frameworks give folks things to practically use as they're trying to approach, how do I do growth at my company? How do I approach activation, adoption, whatever it may be? And so thanks for joining us here on the show today and, and walking us through your, your wisdom. It's been a pleasure, Blake. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Build Podcast. 
If you liked what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content and to let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next time here on Build.